Genesis chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open right to the beginning of the Bible, about the third page in Genesis, first book of the Bible. God's grand design, the beauty of biblical complementarity. It's the series we began two Sundays ago in which we are taking a whole Bible look at God's design of men and women and how that is displayed in life and family and the church. And my goal in this series is to commend to you the unique, complementary design of men and women as something that is beautiful and desirable and essential in reflecting God as his image bearers. These first two weeks, we have looked at what I call the foundations of complementarity in the first two chapters of Genesis, foundational chapters. And we saw first that God purposely created humanity in only two sexual kinds, male and female. That's God's design, male and female. And that both male and female are created in the image and likeness of God equally. So that there is an equal value and dignity in personhood in men and women. In fact, we saw that humanity as male and female is essential to the reflection and representation of God as his image bearers. Both male and female are equally necessary. And then we saw in Genesis chapter 2 what I think are the very foundations for the complementary nature of men and women, of man and woman. Chapter 2 highlights the unique, separate creation of the man and his primary role and the woman from the man and in relation to the man, ending, as we ended last Sunday, in the glorious, unique institution of marriage as a one flesh union. And what we saw there in chapter 2 was that all of that detail, the creation of man and woman and the order God did that in and the way that he did it is intentional and meaningful, not incidental. And we came away, what I left you with last Sunday was just this, these basic principles to draw of the basic headship of the man, his basic leadership, and the essential helpership, I called it, of the woman. It is in this complementary design, headship, helpership, and the function of man and woman within the confines of marriage that God's mandate to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, rule over the earth, it begins here. And in my kind of simple understanding, the task here for the man, the woman to begin is to expand the borders of this sanctuary of Eden to fill the whole earth, to rule over and fill with image bearers to the glory of God. It begins here. And it all goes wrong before it begins. That's Genesis chapter 3. What I've entitled distortions of biblical complementarity. If Genesis 2 is foundational for understanding the basic complementarity of men and women, man and woman, and even husband and wife, Genesis 3 is foundational in a different way. We refer to this in the church, Genesis 3, as, quote, the fall, the fall. 
And by that, if you're not familiar with that language, we're just a shorthand way of referring to the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and the devastating, far-reaching, universal consequences of their sin. That's what chapter 3 is about. Now, without a doubt, this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, is one of the most important single chapters in the whole Bible. It's so important for understanding the story of the Bible and everything that's going to happen. It's important for understanding all of humanity. Why are we like the way we are? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? It's coming from here. And essential to God's whole redemptive plan in Christ. So once again, there are many things in this chapter that we will not discuss. Wish we could. We won't. Our particular lens, remember, is seeing the fall's impact and implications for this complementarity of men and women. So that's the angle we're looking at Genesis 3. There will be other things, lots of other things there that are really important that we don't have time to develop. Again, we've preached on these things. You can go listen to that. But we're going to focus on that specific angle this morning. Let me read Genesis 3. Invite you to follow in your Bible. As always, you have a Bible. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. If you don't, just listen uh, to this. May or may not be familiar to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this cursed, are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field? On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to 
cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Distortions of complementarity. Again, that's the lens we're looking at this chapter in. I'm going to give you three distortions of complementarity. And then I want to end with some glimmers of hope in this chapter. So three. Here's the first one. The reversal of God's design. The reversal of God's design. We've been talking about God's grand design. And here we see a reversal of it. It is not incidental that this crafty serpent, this anti-God figure, approaches the woman. That is not incidental or accidental. We should notice here, this, this whole fall, that, in the words of Andreas Kostenberger, Old Testament scholar, quote, the fall of humanity was engineered by a complete reversal of the, the divine design. <laughs> the fall of humanity was engineered by a complete reversal of the divine design. That's not incidental. What do I mean? Let me give you three notes here. Adam was charged with guarding the garden, yet is passive in subduing the serpent. Adam was charged, we saw it last time, Adam uniquely, before even the creation of the woman, was charged with guarding the garden, the, the temple sanctuary here, this, this sanctuary garden to keep it holy, yet he is passive. We now know that the command back in chapter 1 to subdue the earth is kind of interesting. That word subdue always implies there's hostility, something that needs to be overcome some hostility what is that and then the command in chapter 2 for Adam in his priest-like role to guard the garden like priest in the temple we now make sense of those commands because there is something anti-god here what is this anti-god creature doing in the sanctuary now, again, here's where we just have to leave. We can ask, where does the serpent come from? And why is he talking and nobody seems to be bothered by that, right? Lots of questions. We don't, we're not going to answer those. We, we know from the rest of Scripture that this serpent represents ultimately God's adversary, Satan. He is an anti-God figure. What's he doing in the sanctuary? What's he doing in the garden? Where is Adam? Where is he? Well, apparently, at least at some point in this drama that unfolds, he's right there with his wife. Do you see that in verse 6, right at the end? When she saw that tree, that tree of knowledge of good and evil, she, she just took, and it says she just turned, gave to her husband with her. And he ate. Where is Adam? This reversal of God's design. The woman in this position to defend and guard. And Adam is silent. Adam isn't there. Again, this isn't incidental. He fails miserably to subdue. The first test, and he fails. And he's passive, and we hear nothing. Notice also... The text says down in verse 17 that part of the culpability of Adam is Adam sinned by listening to the voice of his wife. Isn't that interesting? In verse 17, when God comes to confront each serpent then the woman and then the man to announce judgment, he begins by saying, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded. There's, there's just an, an indirect, I would argue, an indirect acknowledgement of his failed responsibility to lead. Again, it's not wrong to listen to the voice of your wife, and we should listen to the voice of our wives. But here's the sense of obeying her and following her into sin. 
You've reversed the role here. You've listened and you ate and you followed. And again, we, we learn about Adam that he, he wasn't deceived. It's likely that he didn't hear any of that conversation between Eve and the serpent. However, that took place. He simply took it from his wife and ate. No questions. No objections. What is he doing? This is the reversal of God's design and it's going badly the beginning. One more thing to note, kind of a larger takeaway from the rest of Scripture, is that Adam, not Eve, is held responsible for sin entering the world. Do you know that? Adam is held responsible for sin entering the world. God will approach him first. Adam, where are you? He has a responsibility, but Adam has this unique role with humanity as the head. He is responsible. Now, again, that's fascinating because we know that Eve sinned first. Eve was deceived. She sinned first. Really, sin came through her. But when the Bible speaks about it, it's Adam. Adam. Two places in the New Testament. We saw one in Romans 5. As through one man, sin entered the world. Death through sin, so death spread to all men. And it just goes on to talk about the one man Adam in contrast to the one man Christ. Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all died. It's in Adam's sin. He is responsible for what happens here. He's accountable for what happens here. Yeah, that should say something to us. Eve sinned first, Adam's responsible. That's his headship. It's his headship here of his wife, but also his unique headship of the human race. As we learn that in Adam we sinned, he's representing us. And there must be a second Adam to come. So just note those things, this complete reversal of God's design right at the beginning is no accident and it's not incidental. It's very deliberate by the evil one. He is crafty. Now just go back just for a moment to Eve's deception. She is deceived against this crafty anti-God creature. She says as much, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She is deceived. Just notice, I want to just notice that progression of her deception. Again, there's so much here we could mine and dig through here. But just notice how that serpent begins. He says to her, has God really said? He immediately begins to question. He's just questioning, throwing that little bit of doubt into her mind. Did God really say? Are you, are you sure that God said that? Maybe it was just Adam. Remember, he wasn't there when the command was given. Maybe it was just Adam said that. Did God really say, just sowing the seeds of doubt, Derek Kidner, the commentator, says in that question, he smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. We can debate it. Did he really say that? Is this really God's command? And then he moves from that to, did God really say? But then he distorts it, right? We saw that. You shall not eat from any tree, of the garden? We didn't say that. Why does he phrase it like that? He's distorting God's word. What's he doing? He's emphasizing the prohibition. He's going to have Eve focus on what is forbidden. So he starts that way. He said, you couldn't eat from any tree? He's just trying to cast God in this negative light of being prohibitive, restrictive. He's got Eve now. She's beginning to entertain this dialogue and as if you can question here and wrestle she adds a little bit to the command and the serpent really has her and so he just now thirdly just denies God's word doesn't he she said we're going to die if we eat and he just says you will not die you surely won't die the first doctrine in the Bible to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. Do you know that? And that's the case all through history. 
He's not going to judge you. You're not going to die. There's no consequence for disobedience. You surely won't die. God knows. He's keeping from you. He really knows. Here's his real motive for not wanting, because he knows you're going to be like him. He's envious. He wants to keep this to himself. He doesn't want you to enjoy. He knows your eyes will be open. You'll be like him. You'll be free. You'll be autonomous. You'll have the divine knowledge. Again, what's he doing? He's betraying God as a killjoy, as restrictive. He's questioning God's goodness. He's not really good towards you. And God's generosity. He's withholding from you. Remember how God said it. You can eat freely of any tree of the garden. His ample goodness and generosity. And he's trying to deny it. And he promises freedom. And he promises divine-like knowledge. You're going to be like God. Guess what? They already are like God. Made in his image. Sufficient. Again, Kidner, the commentator, says it like this. So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God. Listen to this. Presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. Well said. And that's what sin is. Sin is a suicidal plunge dressed up as a leap into life, into freedom, always is. And she falls. Now, again, there's so much we can learn there for ourselves and the temptation, the nature of temptation in our sin, the, the trying to cast God as he's not really good, he, he, he's restrictive. But I just, I point all that out here, the beginning of this series, just the unique application of this kind of temptation on this specific subject we're studying the tendency as we think and through this to ask did, did God really say that we'll see some of those texts of scripture we read if you're not familiar people say that's in the Bible did God really say <laughs> now point of this study is to try to discern what God really said. It's what we want to get after. But as we do that, let's come with this attitude that whatever he says is good. Not restrictive. Not a killjoy. Right? Not lacking his goodness. Even, even if we can't plumb all the reasons for why he might have said something... That we come with faith saying, I know it's good and good for me. Let's be on guard against this subtle temptation to question God's word and the goodness of his word. So that's first, the reversal of God's design. Number two, second distortion, the effects of human corruption. The effects of human corruption. Verse 7, we read, indeed, just like the serpent said, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Again, there's always these half-truths in his lies, right? In his temptation. It's half-true. Your eyes will be open, but not the enlightened freedom that they thought to be like God in their knowledge, but a grotesque enlightenment. It doesn't result in autonomy and enlightenment, but what? Shame and fear. This is the suicidal plunge they have taken. In their desire to be independently like God, being able to determine what is beneficial for them and detrimental. It's when, when he says the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just abstract concepts of good and evil. He's talking experientially and he means determining what is beneficial for me and what is not beneficial or detrimental to me. Good and evil. They want to be able to self-determine that. Well, they have this knowledge now. They've experienced from the inside. So they possess a corrupted experiential knowledge of this good and evil, which results in spiritual death. That's what it results in. 
the consequences are devastating. This is not just a slap on the wrist because they took a cookie out of the cookie jar when they weren't supposed to and say, oh, I, I just, I couldn't resist. This is devastating because their act is an act of rebellion, a treason against God, wanting to be like him, independent of him, autonomous, possessing this knowledge in a corrupted way. Oh, it's not that God would keep knowledge from them, but he will give it in his way what is good. And it results in corruption. Corruption. They are alienated from God. We see that, don't we? Now they're hiding from him behind trees. And they're afraid of him. We're afraid. We heard. Afraid. How much has changed? Their very nature has changed. It has been corrupted. They are alienated from God. They are not part of the life of God anymore. Their innocence is shattered. Their natural dependence on God and their trust in God is all gone. So again, those have massive ramifications for us and for sin. But we're looking at through this angle. So I, I want you to note these two things. Adam and Eve experience shame and alienation from one another. This, this one flesh relationship that exceeds any, any possible other human relationship is now estranged and it's alienated. There's shame. Now that's rooted in their alienation from God, but it comes out horizontally also in their relationship with one another. Again, just notice there, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And then they put leaves, kind of a stopgap measure to cover themselves. Now that's just so interesting. And we kind of chuckle at that. But it's full of meaning, this idea. Remember, it's, it's a direct contrast to how we ended chapter 2. This man and wife says they were both naked and were unashamed. And that symbolizes their, their complete trust. Naked and unashamed, their honesty, their openness, their trust, their commitment. There's no shame here at all. But right when sin happens, there's shame. And they know. They know it. And they want to cover it, right? It's this visceral feeling of nakedness. That's what it is. And it speaks to their spiritual condition. Bruce Waltke, I just want to quote this great Old Testament scholar, I think. He says this, it's difficult to describe what I call the visceral feeling of nakedness. It's something akin to the feeling of vulnerability. This works both ways. The unawareness of nakedness symbolizes openness and trust in the marriage relationship. However, the awareness of it indicates fear and exposure in an unsafe environment. Spouses do not want to commit themselves to this state when they feel they will be put to shame and hurt in the relationship. We seek to cover ourselves up so that we cannot be abused, victimized, or criticized. Clothing is a symbolic barrier that protects us from the slings and arrows of others. Once Adam and Eve declare their autonomy and their sin, they at once realize that each of them has the capability and the will to decide independently what is good and what is evil. Since the other person has chosen to defy God to advance self, how can he or she be trusted not to abuse the other in self-interest? They cover themselves because a relationship cannot survive in an environment of distrust. Barriers such as clothing are erected by society to protect people from each other and to provide them with a measure of security in our fallen world. However, these barriers also remind us that we rightly hesitate to commit ourselves to intimacy. It's quite a bit. Do you know, I mean, you ever stopped and thought about it? <laughs> it might seem an odd thought to you. We humans are the only creatures that clothe ourselves. And there's something really profound in that. 
Not simply because it's cold outside. It wasn't too cold in the garden, I don't think. Mike Mason, in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, he comments on this. He says, the discovery of sin and the discovery of nakedness appear to have been one and the same event. The implication is clear. It is not primarily because we get cold or wet that we must cover ourselves up. It was not 40 below and snowing in paradise. No, we dress because we sin. And even the finest clothing is like the striped suit of the jailbird, a sign and reminder that man is an unholy figure in hiding from God and from his own fellows. It's a lot there. It's fascinating to think about. There's a lot that that means. There's a shame, a vulnerability here, an exposure they feel. Again, that's rooted in this alienation from God because the text goes on, if you look there, verses 8 and following, when, he, when the Lord asks, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound, verse 10, of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. This, this theme just keeps going on. This exposure, this guilt, this shame. So I hid and God says, who told you that? Well, no one did. It's because they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's rooted in that alienation from God. Hmm. Notice also one other note under the effects of human corruption. Adam has moved from celebrating the woman to blaming her and ultimately blaming God. Adam has moved from celebrating the woman to blaming her and ultimately blaming God. Right when God comes to address the man, notice you saw what he said, right? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to, me, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. <laughs> the woman you gave me. Again, there, there's no repentance here at this point. As God confronts and they're afraid and they're hiding and they're shame, now is a good time for repentance or a plea for mercy. God is still seeking them out. It's the nature of God. It's great. He's still seeking these sinners out. He is coming. They're hiding. He is seeking them out, coming, and yet there's no repentance. There's no cry for mercy. There's no confession, certainly, of sin. They're just blame shifting. Right? That's where it starts. You ate? Well, the woman you gave me. Now, that's a true statement. <laughs> but again, you see his lack of responsibility for his own sin and for his own leading his wife. The woman you gave me, this so-called helper, this suitable helper has become a hindrance. She's that woman, right? Perfectly made. And what a contrast between what we saw at the end of chapter 2, where we have that song, that poem of celebration. When he sees Eve, he just celebrates, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. She was taken out of the man. Nothing like her in all creation. This celebration and this, this harmony and this love and this commitment. And now it's blame. Right. Again, his statement only serves to highlight his failure. He didn't lead. He didn't protect why is the woman giving you fruit to eat? He just passively followed. So again, once again, things are so disarrayed. The helper has become a hindrance and the head has become the follower. It's distorted. There's disharmony. There's no responsibility. So those are just the immediate effects of human corruption that we see right off the bat. It affects relationships. Now, here specifically in the marriage relationship, doesn't it? A blame, criticism, not taking responsibility, of a shame. It hinders intimacy. And that's the result of sin. Third, third distortion. And it follows right on from number two. It's almost inseparable. Number three, the results of God's judgment. The results of God's judgment. So beyond the natural corrupting effects of sin that we see 
described or highlighted there is God's specific announcement of judgment. He comes specifically to announce judgment. Now, we often refer to this as the curse, God's curse. But as we read carefully, please notice that only the serpent and the ground are cursed. Technically, the man and woman are not cursed. God is not done with them. The serpent is cursed. To be cursed means you're outside the life of God. You will not overcome final death. The ground is cursed. The serpent is cursed. The men and women are not. And yet, he does speak words of judgment. There are consequences for this sin. There are effects that they are going to experience. So that's what he pronounces. So again, notice a couple things. First, notice that these consequences are gender-specific. The consequences relate to their primary roles and realms of responsibility. Again, not incidental. They're gender-specific. They're striking right at the heart of the existence and identity of the woman and of the man. Very intentional. He doesn't just address them generically as humankind and says, this is the result, you're going to die. No, he has specific consequences, gender-specific consequences that tell us something about these primary realms of responsibility of the man and the woman. That's why he's doing it. So we know to the man, to Adam, he's coming specifically, and he curses the ground. Again, here's Adam's connection to the ground. I didn't mention this last week, but that's where Adam's name comes from. Adam, Adam, our word for man, is from Adama, the word for ground in Hebrew. There's this inseparable connection. He was created from the ground. He's created from the ground, we know that, but his task is to work the ground. That was his primary role, this one of working and providing here. Even while he was in the garden, he was to work there, that ground. And so God comes, and what's he curse? He curses the ground, this primary role, realm of responsibility of Adam, of the man, to work it. Now the ground is cursed. It will resist your work from now on. There's no harmony here. Conditions were better in the garden. You could plant things and they grow. Kind of like Iowa. <laughs> it's a little piece of Eden. Right, right there. Things just grow there. So I guess it's still cursed. But we see it here in New Mexico. Try to grow things, right? Cursed is the ground. It's going to resist you. It's not like it was there in the garden anymore. And notice, he says, it involves pain. He's going to use the same word for pain for the woman and the man. In pain, you shall eat of it. That is this anguish, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to eke out a, a living here. Hmm. And ultimately, you're going to die. You were taken from the ground, and to the ground you will return. You are dust, and to dust you will return. Here's the pronouncement of physical death. God said the day of the tree, you're going to die. We saw the spiritual death, their alienation from God. But there is a physical death that will happen. That is, the ground will overcome you. You won't overcome it. Oh, how this colors that original command to rule over creation and to subdue it. It won't happen. Oh, maybe little bits here and there. You're going to eke out a living. You'll still be able to live, but it's going to be hard. So when we think of work today, right, we can say on the one hand, yes, work was part of the garden. It's part of God's gift. And yet the toil, the pain, the monotony, all that we feel is a result of this curse. We eke it out and then we die, he says. The ground overcomes you ultimately won't rule, but you'll be ruled by it. You'll be subdued by it. You go back to dust. What a devastating word. That's the consequence. So you see man in his primary role. And then to the woman, we know, back there to verse 
16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply again your pain, same word, your anguish, your turmoil in childbirth. The word is actually broader than just childbirth. It's a word that means conception. I think it probably refers to pregnancy, up in, including labor pains as we know them, and perhaps even beyond to child rearing. There will be anguish. I will multiply it to you. Again, what's he striking? He's striking at her primary design. Her primary realm here. Right at the core of her identity. Her responsibility, her as this helper in this mandate of God. Her as the life giver in this unique way as the female, as the wife, as the woman. That's where he strikes. Now, again, we might ask, what's he doing this for? These are part of the consequences of sin. But they're not merely punitive, that is punishments, but they're pointers. They're pointers. Victor Hamilton, in his work on the Pentateuch, says it like this. The writer is not picturing God as a petulant deity sulking, determined to teach these rascals a lesson which they will not soon forget. Like a surgeon who cuts with the scalpel only that it may heal, God initiates a means of redemption to reclaim the prodigals. His plan? To place at the respective point of highest self-fulfillment in the life of a woman and a man problems of suffering, misery, and frustration. These sentences are not the prescribed impositions of a volatile deity. Rather, they are gifts of love strewn in the pathway of man to bring him back to God. There's mercy even in these consequences, in these judgments. They scream, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. When you're laboring at work and you don't want to go, (laughs) something's wrong. And certainly the poignant childbirth and the pains there something's wrong but notice also under this results of judgment marital strife just just look at the end of verse 16 he adds this as he's pronouncing this to the woman he says after he says in pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you now that's a bit enigmatic your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you does that mean? It's not real easy to tell what it means. What helps us is to know, a couple things help us. One is to know that it's given in the part of the consequences, God's judgment for sin. So it's negative. These are negative consequences, not some positive. This is negative. It's part of the judgment here. So what's negative about it? What is this desire? Again, he doesn't spell it out here. The best we can do is the parallel text, Genesis 4, 7. If you look across the page, and my Bible's across the page, where we have almost the identical phrasing, phraseology here in Hebrew. This is God speaking to Cain, warning him that sin is crouching at the door. Then he says this, sin, its desire is for you. <laughs> same, exact same phrase. It's desire, sin, desire. To, to master you, to overcome you. But you must rule it, master it, overcome it. That's a parallel. Again, Bruce Walke says the parallel is transparently intentional and unmistakable <laughs> that it's supposed to inform this. So, again, the desire, I think, so I'll put it like this on the screen there. A pattern of struggle in which the wife will seek control over the husband who will respond by asserting authority. Think that's what's going on here. It's not perfectly clear, but it is. there's some strife here in the marriage. So if it is that desire, like sin, to master and the husband to squash that, to rule. I don't think the rule here is positive either. I think it's domineering, authoritarian here. 
So right here at the heart of this relationship, this complementary relationship, is God's judgment, sin. This is, this is going to be a pattern through history. It affects it. Now, this is really key. I'm just going to pause here. This is key to understanding this whole study right here. I argued last Sunday from Genesis 2 that this complementary design, husband, wife, men, women, some way, is designed before the fall. But its distortion and abuse is a result of the fall. It's designed before the fall. It's God's good creation, yet it is definitely distorted and abused because of sin, because of the fall. There are those who want to argue, and those, those I'm going to disagree. Don't believe, don't see this complementary design of, of men and women, whether in marriage or in the church, who will say those distinctions of, are a result of the fall. And to be redeemed in Christ is to do away with those distinctions. And so part of the hermeneutic here that I'm arguing for is, no, those are designed before the fall as God's good creation they're corrupted in the fall, and part of that redemption in Christ is rest- restoration to God's good original design. Right. So just mark that, that that will be key. But there is tension and there is strife in marriage. If it is that desire to control by the wife, whether it's through a nagging, controlling, criticizing, undermining authority, then that great potential of the husband to domineer. To be authoritarian, even abuse. That is not God's design. We'll flesh those out more when we talk about marriage, even spiritual abuse, using authority in a way to harm. That is not the calling of a husband. It is the opposite of nourishing and cherishing your wife. So we'll get to the, I was, let me in, this glimmer of hope, the glimmer of hope. There, there are several glimmers of hope in here because God doesn't end it all, <laughs> right? There's more pages in my Bible. Things are going on. He doesn't just end this whole program right here. There is mercy in these judgments. There are glimmers of hope. And here's the great one, the promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman. We cling to this. Right here at the beginning, right in the midst of judgment in the fall, God says there, verse 15, go back there, let's end on this. He says to the woman, or to the serpent now, he's speaking to the serpent, God's adversary, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now we should at first just be surprised by that, that there's going to be an ongoing conflict between The offspring, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That things aren't ending here. She doesn't die immediately. And that Adam and Eve are going to be on the side of God. The seed of the woman is going to be at enmity with those who are adversaries of God. That's a hopeful thing right there. It's hopeful. They've not gone over to Satan's side. Now the seed of the serpent, he's not referring to little baby snakes here that you're going to be afraid of. Obviously, he's, again, the adversary, Satan, the seed of the serpent is humanity in rebellion against God. And there will be those two peoples all through the history of the Bible, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and there will be conflict. Conflict, and that includes to us today. That's what it's said here. But then the note of promise. So I'll just note this. The seed, he, will defeat God's adversary will bruise his head. It's a fatal blow. Yet only through his suffering. He'll be bruised on the heel. He switches there at the end of verse 15 to a singular pronoun. The word seed, Zerah, is a collective. It can refer to a multitude. But now he says, masculine singular, he, speaking of the seed, shall bruise you, serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. <laughs> Again, that's somewhat cryptic, isn't it? He's referring to? He's referring to that great triumph of the seed of the woman, namely, who we know as Jesus, who will triumph, but only through suffering, the bruising of the heel, namely through his death and resurrection. 
That's through the seed of the woman. Just pause there and think of that. Oh, how it displays the unique honor and value of the woman. It's her seed. So be a human being this deliver. It's her seed. Through the seed of the woman. Her role continues. And then we see at the end, the man, Adam, names the woman Eve, life, signaling her unique essential role in God's promise. Isn't that a fascinating thing in verse 20? After God just said, you're going to return to the dust, he turns to his wife and names her Eve. Again, he's naming, that's part of his headship. He's naming her Eve. Eve just means life. He understands the promise. In the midst of this death and judgment, Eve will be the mother of all living. Let's take that in. How precious that is. How precious is that role for women. Hmm. Salehammer commentator says, After the fall, childbirth becomes the means by which the snake is defeated and the blessing restored. The pain of every birth is a reminder of the hope that lies in God's promise. This promise is true. Let me pray for us. We'll pick up next week by looking at the rest of the Old Testament. <laughs> Let me pray as we close. Father, thank you for just your word. And oh, give us, give us faith to believe it, to live on it. We need help, Lord, in our relationships with one another, within our marriages, our tendencies. Sin has affected us so greatly. We cling to a Savior, Jesus, who rescues us, who restores us. Oh, conform us to Christ, we ask in His name. Amen.